Hello and welcome to Didomi. My name is Manal Tayyar. I'm co-hosting today's podcast with Matthew Jones. He's a human rights advocate based in Geneva, and his work is focused on civil society space across Europe and the South Caucasus. Welcome, Matthew. Hi, Manal. I'm really pleased to join this podcast. I, I love the idea of discussing important issues in a thoughtful and sensitive way and, and being open to learn from one another. Even more so when it comes, of course, to issues that we might find challenging or uncomfortable or difficult to grapple with. And it's really in that spirit um, that we'll be exploring the topic of abortion with Dr. Callum Miller, a medical doctor, philosopher and ethicist. Uh, Dr. Miller graduated from the University of Oxford Medical School in 2015 and currently works as a medical doctor in the UK. He holds a master's degree in biblical studies and teaches philosophy at the University of Oxford, where his research focuses on abortion policy in practice. He has spoken and advised on abortion policy internationally over many years. And so it's a real pleasure to have you, Callum, with us today. However, before I turn to you, Callum, um, I just want to, to begin by highlighting the, the sensitivities that we and, and I know um, many of our listeners will have around today's topic. I personally find abortion quite a difficult issue to discuss. Um, I feel, rightly or wrongly, that being male brings additional challenges uh, when talking about abortion. And ultimately, I appreciate that I won't face making decisions on this issue in a way that a woman might, for instance. So it's really in a spirit of humility that I join Manal and Callum in this discussion today. I'm also reminded that there will be listeners who themselves have considered or undergone an abortion at some point. Our hope is that whatever your experience of abortion might be, that you'll come away from listening to this podcast feeling that we treat this issue with due gravity and humanity and out of a desire to learn and build one another up. With that said, Callum, we're delighted to have you with us today. Uh, thank you for taking the time to explore the topic of abortion with us. We're really interested to hear how you got into thinking about and working on this issue. From some of the blogs and papers that you've written, um, it's clear that you're interested in looking at it from an intersectional perspective, uh, including through the lenses of theology, mental health and well-being. I wonder if you could begin by, by telling us a bit more about why you care about this issue. Um, Callum, I, I hand the mic over to you. Well, thank you. And thank you especially for being willing to tackle such a uh, sensitive and challenging topic as this on Didomi. Um, thank you as well to your listeners who have um, already had the patience to begin hearing what I have to say today. Um, it's a topic that um, can be difficult not just to talk about, but even to hear about or, or listen to a discussion on. So um, I'm really grateful for, for the patience that your listeners have shown and will be showing. Um, it's a good place to start. How did I get into this? Especially, I think, because for me, I didn't come at this from a kind of culture that was particularly pro-life or opposed to abortion, whether in my wider country or even in my immediate family or my church or anything like that. Um, it really wasn't till quite a bit later in life that I began to really think about this issue properly and began to reflect on it and then ultimately work on it academically and um, in other ways. So for me, it was something that in the UK is very rarely spoken about and almost everyone in the UK considers themselves pro-choice, um, by which they mean that they support the choice, the particular choice of a woman to have an abortion. Um, 
for me, I kind of went along broadly with that. I, I didn't really have any strong opinions about it, but I, I wasn't opposed to abortion. I didn't consider myself really pro-life in a significant sense, um, really until quite a bit of the way through medical school. And when I was in medical school, I really found that there was an opportunity to think about topics that I'd never thought about. And being at a, a very good university, um, particularly one that was devoted to free speech and genuine exchange of ideas, it really gave me the opportunity to think about topics which I wouldn't normally think about. You know, it gave me the, the chance to think about opinions, which are pretty unpopular opinions in the UK. And so what I found was that at medical school, I was learning all of these things. And to some extent, doctors have to have some sort of opinion on abortion because it comes up in medical practice. And what I found firstly was that the, the discoveries of embryology made it very clear to me that life began at conception. This was not something that I had learned or believed for any religious reason. Um, and in fact, when you look through the history of debate on this topic, it wasn't the Bible that defined the beginning of life at fertilization. The biblical authors didn't know about fertilization. It was really the discoveries of embryology in the late 18th century, the early 19th century, and the late 19th century even, um, that showed the beginnings of human life and that actually it began a lot earlier than people thought and this was something I was exposed to at medical school so I had this sort of basic scientific background um, but of course that doesn't settle the question of abortion because some people say even though life begins at conception it's not a person it doesn't have legal rights at that point or they might say even if it is a person it should be the woman's choice uh, whether she continues that pregnancy and allows the child to live um, using her womb or whether she's permitted to end the life of the child by removing it from her womb. Um, so that didn't settle the matter in any sense. But as I went through medical school, um, I was gradually exposed to the reality of abortion, what abortion involved. I was exposed to the philosophical arguments about these issues, about personhood and about uh autonomy and and the freedom to do what um, someone wants to do with their body. And I was also exposed to the impact of abortion on women. In particular, I had a very powerful lecture given to me, not at medical school, but by another doctor at a conference, talking about the psychiatric outcomes after abortion and showing that, in fact, women who have abortions for an unwanted pregnancy have significantly worse mental health outcomes. And that was something that was really, really significant to me, um, especially in a culture where you cannot think about this issue without thinking about the well-being of women, and, and, and that's rightly so. So I had all of these sorts of things all together kind of going around in my mind, and I don't think there was any one particular moment where everything clicked. But ultimately, the argument that made so much sense to me in the end was an argument fundamentally about human equality. Um, I'd always been someone who considered myself fairly politically left-wing and much of that was to do with my Christian convictions and I'm not making any general claim about what party or political persuasion Christians should be but I had found myself that the issues I cared most about were things like poverty, uh, climate change, immigration, refugees, and so on, and had a real passion for particularly the most vulnerable people in society. 
the last, the least and the lost and how the Bible talks about these people as being of a special concern to God and therefore requiring special support from his people, the church. Um, And so in that sense, it was sort of incongruous that I began to see abortion as one of the major social justice issues of our time, given that it's so typically associated with political conservatism. But it was really that sort of care for the downtrodden, which, as I say, is not unique to the political left, but is obviously a major emphasis of the left. It was really that that began to change my thinking about abortion. Um, And it was thinking about human equality that helped me to see that the unborn child is one of the most vulnerable members of our society. And so the argument that really ultimately made sense to me was something along these lines. It just said, Every human being is equal and has equal fundamental rights. And then I knew from my medical studies that the unborn child was a human being. And therefore, it followed inescapably that the unborn child was equal to everyone else and had equal fundamental rights. And when I looked closer, all the arguments to sort of escape this logic seemed to have really problematic consequences. So many philosophers, probably the, in fact, the foremost philosophers who defend abortion typically say that unborn children are humans, but they're not persons because they don't have the level of cognitive sophistication um, to be a person, to have full moral status. But I found this problematic because it had very sinister, in my view, implications about newborn infants and certain disabled people who also might lack cognitive sophistication, who might not be able to do as many things as many other people. But the Bible challenged me and said, well, of course, these people are made in the image of God, and they are just as treasured by him as anyone else. And so I really wasn't able to dissociate this idea of human equality from this idea of the unborn child being a part of that human equality and being a member of the human family. And then so finally, why did I think it was just so significant? Um, That might explain why, you know, why I would care about it and why I would have this position on it. But it doesn't explain why I think it's such a central issue. And for me, the main thing that helped me to see the centrality of this issue was the scale of it. Um, In the UK, one in three women are going to have or will have had an abortion in their lifetimes. So this means that whenever I spoke to any significant number of people on it, I would be speaking to people who had been involved in an abortion. And that's not just the woman who had had an abortion. It's the man who might have compelled her into an abortion or paid for the abortion or pressured her in some other way and so on. And so so I began to see how all of us had this sort of involvement in this enormous social issue. It wasn't something that we could just push to the side and dismiss as being an issue for very few people. It was something that a huge number of people go through and that affects a huge number of children. And so when I put all of this together and I saw the lives lost through abortion, along with the damage that abortion did to so, so many women, I think it's impossible when you put all of that together for a Christian's heart not to grieve at that situation and to feel a sense of urgency that this is something that needs to be addressed in a compassionate but substantive way. 
Thanks, Callum. And I think uh, you already set out for us, you know, what the Bible says uh, in relation to abortion and thinking it through. I mean, many of our listeners, of course, uh, are Christian and, and will be coming at the issue of abortion from a kind of a, a Christian background and within a Christian framework. And I wonder, though, you know, if you could speak to why you think it is that abortion is such a sensitive issue. I mean, you know, you talked a little bit about your political background. If I reflect on my own political background, I, I probably have a kind of a, a centre-left um, political heritage, I would say. Um, and yet it is such a divisive issue, particularly, I think, on the left, but uh, across the political spectrum. Why do you think that is? Why has it become such a sensitive and divisive issue? And why, you know, within our societies and our cultures, why is this issue so difficult to have a, a kind of a discussion on in a, in a public forum, like, for instance, um, in the context of this podcast? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and I think there's a few reasons for it. I think one of the first reasons is what I intimated at um, in my opening suggestions, which is that it's such a common issue. So if you say that abortion is wrong, if you say that even if you don't say that, but you say the unborn child has value and has fundamental rights without even talking about abortion, what it does is it says to one in three women and a huge number of men who have been involved that they have done something wrong. And that is, of course, <laughs> this sort of the number one alarm bell of our culture, the idea of judging someone and saying that someone has done something wrong. And this is why I think it's so significant that we see abortion not as just a women's issue and not just as um, an issue where individuals are responsible. Um, of course, certain individuals will have different parts to play in it. But ultimately, abortion, especially at the level that we have it in our societies, is a societal problem. And it's a societal failure to give women the support that they need to continue an perhaps unintended or even unwanted pregnancy. Um, it's often a part of the failure of men to take responsibility for their child. It's often a responsibility of men to have sex in a position where they feel they have responsibility or the ability to look after a child. Um, it's partly a problem of lack of financial and practical support. Um, it's partly a problem of maternity discrimination against women in the workplace and so on. And so it's, it's very easy to see, I think, why it becomes so divisive, because without all of this background and without thinking of it as a societal failure, both to women and to their children, it's so easy just to think of abortion as a way of condemning women. And of course, if it's only seen in that way, then it basically becomes a way of attacking women and relieving men of any sort of responsibility or blame or anything like that. And so it can very easily be seen not just as misogynistic, but also as a way of being judgmental towards particular people. And when it's such a common issue, it's very easy to see why that would be so um, inflammatory and why people would very naturally respond with a sort of sense of indignation that, um, you know, so many of us men, especially who maybe have mistreated women or have contributed to these societal problems, um, if we men are suddenly just blaming individual people for having abortions and saying nasty things about them, then 
I think it's only understandable and fair that there's a sense of that um, injustice and um, a disproportionate allocation of blame and so on. Um, so I think that's one reason. And, and our society is is obviously allergic to this sense of judgment and to this sense of right or wrong. But I think in this case, there is a, a sense in which that allergy is justified when that blame is concentrated on single individuals and not the wider society, which has a part to play in this, a very, very big part to play. A second reason I think that it's so divisive is because there's this sense, particularly in the Western world, that women's liberation is dependent on abortion. Um, This is particularly so in the US and, and I guess probably also in Europe as well. I guess because there's a correlation between significant societal improvements for women over the last 50 years and also abortion being legalized about 50 years ago in in many western countries it's quite natural to attribute these or, or to link these two and to say that women's advancement in society is partly based on the right to have an abortion and to choose when they have children and so on you could also almost think of it i don't know if if this is just an english thing but we have a game called jenga Maybe it's a, I assume it's a worldwide thing, but I'm wary of British people assuming that the rest of the world is like them. Um, A game where you basically have a block of bricks and you have to pull one out from the bottom each time and the person who makes the tower fall over is is the loser, essentially. Um, Abortion is almost seen in this way, that abortion is one of the most fundamental bricks of that tower of women's equality and women's participation in society. So that if you pull that brick out, the whole thing tumbles. And that is, of course, a frightening thought. And, And it's very easy to see why women would think that that's a frightening thought, because no one wants to go back to a time where they were so badly mistreated and even seen explicitly as subhuman or inferior to men, um, as in some of the classical traditions. So I I think it's understandable to have that reaction. Um, But on the other hand, many feminists have given very powerful responses to this argument. Um, They've actually questioned the empirical literature, and they've shown that actually the right to an abortion has not been significantly responsible for those advancements. And those advancements in women's status have primarily come from other sources. Um, In fact, there's empirical literature showing that abortion has contributed to the feminization of poverty because it facilitates a culture in which men can abandon women and their children after having sex with them and therefore leave women with the burden of raising a child by themselves falling into poverty as a result and so on. And it's easy, of course, for men to just say, well, if the woman doesn't want that, she can have an abortion. But of course, this only reinforces the point that um, abortion has been so often used as a way of reinforcing men's lack of responsibility and allowing them to abdicate their duties, both to the woman and to the child. And so there's a lot of empirical literature on the ways in which abortion has facilitated this culture and caused to increasing poverty among women in the last 50 years. And likewise, when you look at studies of women's happiness over the last 50 years, the evidence that women have got happier as a result of abortion is likewise virtually non-existent. So all of this to say, I I think it's, it's absolutely understandable why, if you have this narrative that women's equality is based on abortion, there would be 
terror and horror at the thought of it being removed. And that's completely understandable. But of course, those of us on the pro-life side looking at the empirical literature want to say that's not actually a true narrative. In fact, abortion has contributed to the detriment of women in many, many cases and on a large scale. Um, and, and many pro-life feminists have had a lot more to say about that. Callum, thank you. This is um, It's expanding my view of how I've, I've seen abortion. And I really appreciate how you've brought into it the structural elements. You've already spoken a little bit about this, but I'm wondering if you can speak specifically to Today, what are the specific reasons why women actually have abortions? We may have assumptions of why they take place. Can you relay out the factors? You know, what comes into play as women are trying to make such an important decision? Sure. Yeah, and and it's it's a profoundly important question, and I, I often wonder whether we should just never speak about this topic until we at least have some understanding of why abortions occur. Um, that's probably not true. I think probably we have a, a an obligation of justice to speak out for the needy and the vulnerable, um, even without understanding why these situations occur. But I think it's a bad idea. <laughs> and I think as soon as people can, they should become familiar, at least with the basic information we have about why abortions happen. On this question, I think we need to have an attitude that is both critical in the sense of genuinely looking at the evidence on this and looking at what the evidence shows and questioning false narratives about most abortions being done in extreme circumstances, for example. Um, but I think we also have to have an attitude that is not dismissive because we don't want to go to the other extreme by saying virtually every abortion is done for very trivial reasons because neither of those two extremes are the case. So I think we'll talk more about this later, but when it comes to the extreme cases of a woman's life being in danger or the woman being a victim of a sexual assault, um, these are a tiny, tiny proportion of abortions. In the UK, for example, there are 200,000 abortions every year, and the number done because a woman's life is in danger is significantly less than 100, so a tiny, tiny percentage. Um, the number of abortions done because a woman has been a victim of a horrific sexual crime varies a lot between country to country, um, as you might imagine, uh, particularly in war-torn countries where rape is very common, the, the number is significantly higher. But again, it's generally a very low percentage, particularly in Western countries with abortion on demand. Um, we don't know exactly what the percentage is, but the highest estimate really I've ever seen is 1%, and most studies show significantly less than that. On the other hand, that's not to say that the large majority of the rest are done for trivial reasons. We do know that on the other end of the spectrum, there are a small number of abortions which are done for reasons we might consider trivial or even horrendous. Um, Sex-selective abortion is perhaps the best example of that. Um, in the UK, it does happen, but it's a fairly small number. In India, there are about a million sex-selective abortions every year, and that's an abortion just because the baby is a baby girl. Um, and it is worth saying that almost all of these sex-selective abortions are for baby girls rather than for baby boys. And this is, of course, one of the ways in which abortion has harmed women, because it is one of the primary contributing factors to the lack of presence of women in society, particularly in societies like India or China or certain parts of the Caucasus region. 
what that means is that abortion is one of the most powerful tools of the patriarchy to remove the presence and voice and visibility of women in society. This has downstream effects. We know that in in India, it's caused a rise in sex trafficking and bride trafficking, because in some areas, the imbalance of men and women is so extreme as a result of sex selective abortion, that it's almost impossible for many men to find a partner. And what this means is that there is a trade in women being trafficked from other parts of India or other parts of the world in order to rectify that imbalance. And so we see this sort of ripple effect of injustice towards women downstream of the abortion itself. Um, As I say, though, in most countries, that is also a, a small minority of abortions. So there's a bit of literature on why most abortions take place in most countries. Um, It does vary from country to country. But generally, one of the biggest reasons is a woman wants no more children. Um, This in itself is not very informative. It might be that she wants no more children because she always wanted a family of two children and that's what she's got. Um, It might be that she wants no more children because it would cause significant financial strain and so on. So that doesn't necessarily tell us a huge amount. The other biggest reasons are things like education and career. Um, And we know quite often as a result of maternity discrimination, that women are pressured, not outrightly, um, but they are subject to a sort of soft pressure to have an abortion, knowing that if they had their baby, they would lose out on a promotion, maybe even lose their job. And in some cases, that becomes explicit. Um, There was a case from Ireland very shortly after it legalized abortion, where female pilots in Ireland were explicitly told, have an abortion or you will lose your job. Um, Now, thankfully, in many countries, this sort of clear employment blackmail is illegal. But nevertheless, in almost every country in the world, that sort of soft pressure would always be there, as long as mothers in the workplace are subject to discrimination. And so it's easy to see why career and education are one of the leading reasons given for having abortions. Another major reason is socioeconomic concerns. Contrary to what some people say, these are not the majority of abortions. They're typically around 10 to 30 percent of abortions are done partly for financial reasons. And women who have abortions for financial reasons usually have other reasons as well. So it's not merely a case of financial um, inability, but that is a significant partial reason. And then significantly, as I've already spoken about, outright coercion is a fairly common factor. Again, it varies between country to country, um, but in many studies, it's around a fifth to a quarter of abortions are done essentially as the result of coercion, either from a partner or from a parent or from a doctor and so on. Um, There are, of course, many other reasons which are a smaller minority, but those would be the main ones that we would see in the literature surveying women on this question. Thanks for explaining the the whole spectrum. And I think you've already answered, again, partly this next question. As you speak about the women who feel compelled to have an abortion, for whatever reasons they may be facing, what roles would you imagine we as a church, a society or a culture would need to play to be able to care for these women in these vulnerable situations? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's a question that as Christians, we can answer particularly effectively um, because it's been such a strong theme throughout the entire Bible, this theme of Christians giving practical support 
to specifically widows and orphans. Now, in the modern context, thankfully, thanks to developments in modern medicine, it's much less common that children would be orphaned um, by their father passing away or that uh, women would be widowed uh, in that sense. But there's a sort of modern equivalent, um, at least in many Western societies, um, which is the abandonment of the child and the woman by the father. And this creates a sort of modern equivalent of widows and orphans, which is that the father is absent not because they've passed away, but actually for an even more egregious reason in some senses, because the father has chosen to abandon them. Um, And so this is something that Christians throughout history um, and in the Jewish tradition before it have, have really put at the forefront of their vision for justice and their vision for society is caring for people in these situations, with the Bible already recognising that widows and orphans were particularly likely to need assistance. This isn't even just from the Mosaic law or into the New Testament. It goes back, in a sense, even before that, when you have stories like Hagar, um, Abraham's concubine, who was sent out into the wilderness by Sarah. Another time she fled out by her own choice, obviously in response to abuse by her masters. And I think the first time she fled out while she was pregnant, the second time she had had the baby, um, but the baby still seemed to be a child that was in need of care. And the second time in Genesis 21, she goes out into the desert and she is so desperate that she thinks there's literally no hope for them. She thinks there's nothing that she can do. The water runs out and she thinks the boy at least is going to die imminently and I can't bear to watch this. And it says she went off and sat down about a bow shot away after putting the boy under a bush for she thought I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to cry. And then it says God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Now, this is something that I think is really significant because it shows God's heart towards Hagar, who has been um, become pregnant in a sort of unorthodox way. She wasn't married to Abraham. She was his concubine and has been sent away in shame, in distress, in poverty with a child to look after by herself. And God calls to her and says that he hears, and that is what that is literally what the name Ishmael means. It means God hears, um, or he hears. And this, this I think is profound because it shows God's heart that it, he is a God who hears the downtrodden and hears the vulnerable and responds to their needs. Um, and in the context of the church, calls his people, the church, to respond to their needs. And so this is why we see in the book of Acts, for example, in Acts chapter 6, the Hellenistic Jews among the disciples of Jesus complained because their widows were being overlooked and they all got together and sorted this out. And there are you know, a huge number of passages in the Bible which talk about provision for the widow and the orphan. But what's most remarkable, I think, is the early church tradition on this, which really almost took this practice to an extreme in that there are known people from the early church who would go out into the Roman society. And in the Roman society, abortion and infanticide were seen as the same thing. Um, Both neither uh, uh, 
child in the womb nor a newborn child had significant moral value and it was legal to kill them if the family felt that that was appropriate or at least in most cases it was legal to do so. Um, More often these children would be left exposed. Um, They would be put out on a hilltop where they would be eaten by wolves or they would freeze to death or sometimes they would be left in a more public place like the marketplace where people could take them and usually they would be taken into slavery as a result. In fact abortion was seen as worse than infanticide in the Roman culture because it was much more dangerous and because it was done sort of without regard to the characteristics of the child. Whereas in the case of infanticide, it was less dangerous because you didn't need to perform any procedure on the woman and you could do it selectively so that if the child was disabled, you could kill it. Whereas if the child was born healthy, you could raise it. Um, And this was the, it sounds very candid and and a very brutal culture of infanticide in the Roman world, but that was simply the norm in the Roman world. And so when Christians went out into this world, we find records of them going to the places where babies were left and retrieving them, literally going out just to find these babies who had been abandoned and retrieve them and take them not as slaves, but as members of the family in the church to such an extent that when Christianity became institutionalized, this obviously went along with a huge number of problems for the authenticity of the church, because power can be a very corrupting thing and and can easily lead people astray from their principles. But on the other hand, the institutionalization of Christianity did bring significant institutional benefits. It was really the invention of the welfare state. And one of the main things ordered to local bishops was that they had a responsibility as the leaders of the church, the most important people on the church. They individually had the responsibility to make sure that babies were provided for in these sorts of situations. And so there was such a huge concern um, in the early church for practical provision, both for the women who might have kept their child but be unable to look after it, or the women who had left their child out of desperation at a local marketplace. In both cases, the church received them and gave practical support to them and considered that one of the most fundamental elements of their call to bring justice to the society around them. Um, Lucian, who is one of our sources for the crucifixion of Jesus, who mocked Christians for their stupidity um, in one of his stories, um, he tells a story about orphans being part of the Christian family. And and this was something that was unusual about the Christian family. Um, We know that the epistle of Barnabas, um, which was written just after the first century, maybe even in the first century, says that those who follow the way of darkness have no care for the orphan and so on. And so there's a huge range of early church literature where where this was a central element of social justice, looking after the widow and the orphan, collecting money for them, distributing food for those in need. And it's something that Christians today um, have (laughs) a far greater ability to do given the affluence of the modern world. Um, It's worth, I think, just mentioning that Christians often get a sort of bad rap on this specific question for sort of contingent and complex historical reasons to do with the American two-party system. 
And I think this is worth addressing because it's a very, very common criticism that Christians don't care for children after they're born. It's all about saving the unborn child, but not about looking after the mother and not about looking after the child after birth. Um, when you look at the history of the American pro-life movement, which is the most sort of notorious capitalist, hypocritical pro-life movement in the world, according to kind of the standard narrative. The majority of pro-lifers were Catholic Democrats for most of the 20th century, and many Republicans were pro-choice for most for much of the 20th century, particularly around the time abortion was legalized in the US. The main reason there was a shift of pro-lifers to the Republican Party, which then also took on this very kind of capitalist and interventionist in foreign policy and you know all, all the sort of vices we associate with the Republican Party in the late 20th century. The reason that happened and that pro-lifers moved to that party was really just because the Democrats didn't really make room for them. That's not to make this a sort of partisan thing, it's just to explain the history that pro-lifers from the beginning weren't all these sort of hypocritical people who didn't care about children after birth. It was really a particular historical moment that caused this association of capitalism and various other um, controversial political positions allied to the pro-life movement. All that to say, in the American pro-life movement, there are three to 4,000 crisis pregnancy centers. And Laura Hussey has a very good book on this, documenting this in uh, strenuous empirical detail. And she points out that most of these centers provide for the woman and the child long after the child has been born. And they do it indiscriminately to any woman who comes to them for help, whether she was considering abortion or not. And so the focus of these really is not just preventing abortions. It really is about holistically supporting women and children. And there are three to four thousand of them in the US alone. And in fact, the number of volunteers at these centers far, far outnumbers pro-lifers in any other strand of the pro-life movement at all, particularly pro-life political advocacy. And so I say that just to, I suppose, challenge this popular narrative that pro-lifers are just kind of greedy people who only care about preventing abortion. I actually don't think that's fair to the evidence and particularly unfair to our American brothers and sisters who have done more than most people around the world to give practical support to those women and children, whatever you might think about the politics um, of, of the parties there. So I think this is something that the church around the world can emulate. And the church has always had a reputation for looking after women and children. And I think it's it's profoundly important that we continue to do that and continually set up more of these centres to, to care for them both. Callum, I really appreciate this long-term view that you're taking and, and taking care of women and orphans and widows as, as you're qualifying them. And I also want to take into consideration the you know, if we were to center in today's moment and a woman has had an unplanned pregnancy, is facing financial difficulties, may have gone through rape or incest or anything of the sort. And given the patriarchal context and societies that we have lived and continue to live in, for many women, the option or having the option of choosing abortion can be a form of regaining a sense of agency, whether it's over their bodies, their futures, their lives. Um, so what's your take on that perspective on 
the current moment of when a woman is in, in, a, in a difficult situation and her claiming this way to be able to regain her sense of agency. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think it's something that we really have to take seriously, because if you spend enough time debating this topic or discussing this topic or, or just being involved in this topic, it doesn't always actually come out immediately. This point isn't always brought up very explicitly, certainly not commonly, but it's is very clearly there that there because of the history of women not having control over their bodies in many cases, and certainly over many other parts of their lives, there's a sort of acute sensitivity to limitations on abortion because it involves limiting what a woman can do with her body. And so I think the first thing we have to do is recognize that this is a legitimate concern insofar as it is part of a wider historical context in which women have often been refused control, not only over other parts of their lives, their careers, their futures, and so on, but even over their very bodies. Um, and this can be in a number of ways, you know, whether it's through the extreme cases of women who are trafficked or women who are raped, whether it's through cases which are common in many countries where even in the context of a marriage, a woman might be subject to significant physical abuse or marital rape and so on. Or, or even thinking through the 20th century, the issue of population control, where so many women across the world were forcibly sterilized, particularly in countries like India. Um, women were either forcibly sterilized or paid a tiny, tiny amount of money that they felt was worth it to be sterilized because they were in such destitute poverty. Um, and of course, in that sort of situation, you could call it a choice of sorts, but it's a very, very limited, attenuated choice in that sort of situation where poverty is causing such desperation. Um, and there are, of course, many, many other examples as well. So the first thing we need to do is absolutely recognize this historical milieu of women not having control or agency. And that is something we have to address head on. What I would say in a case of abortion, however, is that there are a few other things to consider. Um, the first, of course, is that in many, many cases of abortion, I don't know whether it's most, but it might well be, there will be a sort of sense that if things were right, if the circumstances were right, I would be happy to have this baby and I would want this baby. And it's only my circumstances that are sort of pushing me towards having an abortion, whether it's my financial circumstances, my relationship circumstances, and so on. But I think that in itself shows that for a very significant number of abortions, this is not something the woman ultimately wants to choose in ideal circumstances. She is having her choice limited by those circumstances. Um, as I've already spoken about, in a significant minority of circumstances, that coercion is very explicit, whether from a parent or a partner or a doctor and so on. Um, we even know that abortion providers themselves pressure women to have abortions. Um, this is something that's not just anecdotal. Um, in the UK, we have a hospital regulator called the CQC, the Care Quality Commission. And they found when they went to a leading abortion provider, which is one of the biggest abortion providers in the world, if not the biggest, they found that they had a culture where staff were given bonuses for getting more women to have abortions. Um, they saw it as a performance indicator for the staff that a woman went through with having an abortion. And so there are all these cultural factors which challenge the idea that this is centrally about a choice. One of the other things I think I'd say is that 
of course, there is a sense in which women have a sense of agency through the decision whether to have an abortion or not. I think this is a really problematic way to think about it, though, for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is that, of course, if we think of it sheerly from a my body, my choice sort of perspective, then we have to grapple at some point with the fact that there are two bodies in this situation. And half the time, of course, that second body is the body of a baby girl. This is something that is really significant because we think of, you know, my body, my choice, bodily autonomy being an easy solution to this question, regardless of the moral status of the child themselves. But even if we took bodily autonomy to be a paramount virtue or a paramount priority, what about the bodily autonomy of the child themselves? Um, we know that even very early on, by 12 weeks, most likely, perhaps earlier, the baby is conscious even at a very low level, but nevertheless is sentient and is able to feel pain at about 12 weeks. And biologically speaking, it's just clear, it's a scientific fact that these are two bodies. And so I don't think it's a simple matter of saying bodily autonomy wins the day and therefore it's the woman who gets to decide because the baby has a body as well, even if it's a very frail and small and incapable and newly or undeveloped body, it is nevertheless a body which we have to respect. So I think for these reasons, I think while we have to accept the fact that women's agency has been limited, in particular with respect to their own body, and therefore we have to understand the sensitivity around these sorts of questions, I don't think that means we can simply have a sort of bodily autonomy free-for-all, because the reality is that as much as in the light of this history, we do have to give significant weight to bodily autonomy, we also have to have regulations on it for the protection of the vulnerable. And COVID is a very good example. Um, in the COVID pandemic, I have had to limit what I do. I haven't had you know, many invasive things done to my body other than the vaccine, but I've had to have significant limitations on my personal freedom and on my agency because that is the best way of protecting the vulnerable. Now, I'm sure many people have very, very different positions on COVID restrictions, mandatory vaccines, and so on. I'm not going to get into that, obviously. Um, but I do think the general principle is something that all of us can accept, that we have to have some regulations on bodily autonomy, not because we want to control people, but because that is the only way sometimes of protecting the most vulnerable and innocent members of society. And I think perhaps the best way to recognize this in the context of abortion is to point out that almost everyone in the world thinks there should be some regulation on abortion. Even the most vehement pro-choice advocates I've met usually say that they don't think abortion should be allowed in some cases, whether in the third trimester or because the baby is a girl or for whatever reason, they will say there are some cases where the women's choice should be limited. Now, they won't always put it that way because they don't want to seem anti-woman, but that is the implication of what they're saying. They're saying that women's choice about their body should be limited in these circumstances. And so what I think that demonstrates is that all of us recognize that at some point, bodily autonomy has to be limited, not for its own sake, because that would be abusive or, or invasive, 
but in order to protect a vulnerable child or a vulnerable member of the human community. And all of us, or almost all of us, recognize that in some cases on abortion. The pro-life view just says that we have to make this an absolutely consistent principle where every human life is protected from the moment that it begins to exist. So for those reasons, I think the bodily autonomy argument and principle of upholding women's choice and agency is very, very important. But I think we can't uncritically accept it as a fundamental principle, ultimately because there are two bodies involved. It's interesting, you know, when you were talking about your route to coming to this issue in the first place and looking at it on the basis of equality and what have you, because that, it's quite similar to me. But I've, I've never kind of comprehensively looked at the issue in a way that kind of empowers me to discuss it more with people. You know, I feel really disempowered. And, and I think that um, kind of what you're bringing to us today, this already empowers me in a sensitive way to help to address this, you know, with people that I know. So thank you. And then we hopefully we speak again soon. I just want to add my words of thanks. This is just phenomenal. Thank you for the thoughts, the time you've put into this. I'm really intrigued. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Karen. Thank you so much for having me on. And I'm always grateful when people have the courage to take on this issue. So <laughs> I'm always just as grateful to anyone who hosts me. So thank you. This was part one of a two-part interview with Callum. We still have many more questions we'd like to ask him. And we'd invite you to join us in part two of this interview soon. As always, if you enjoyed this topic and the reflections of those we're inviting on this podcast, we'd invite you to share with your friends and community. This is the only way we can help more people learn about the Didiomic podcast. Thank you. Hope to see you soon and have a blessed year.